Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both The Killer and Napoleon. Join me today. He rented out a WeWork space just to have better audio quality for this podcast. It's Elijah Howard. Elijah, how's it going? Hey man, I am so excited to talk about two totally stable geniuses today. It's going to be great. Yeah, I know. It worked out very well because we had been we had scheduling difficulties. We were supposed to talk about The Killer like two weeks ago. And then I was like, I, I saw like five movies the week of Thanksgiving. And like, you know, understandably, everyone is busy with their own scheduling th- issues. So I'm just like, I'm now I'm spending the week after Thanksgiving trying to figure out when I'm going to record all of these. And I'm like, oh, Elijah was sick, but maybe he found time to see Napoleon. I checked your letterbox and you had. I'm like, hey. Elijah's, uh, you know, already talked about one very weird Walking Phoenix this movie. Why not have him for a second one? <laughs> so uh, we're, we're excited to have Napoleon on, but we're going to first talk about The Killer, which is David Fincher's uh, newest film since 2020's Mank uh, episode, on which Elijah also joined us for. It's just, he's following it up with something very different, but but also something very familiar to him. Uh, it's about you know murder. It kind of, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's it's about a hitman who is uh, played by Michael Fassbender. He is, uh, you know, n- he's never identified by name and is credited as the killer in the movie. Uh, he, but he has several different aliases, which we might talk about a little bit, which are you know funny because both of these movies we're talking about today actually kind of funny, even if you know on the surface you might not think these are going to be kind of funny. Uh, but the killer, uh, as we kind of meet him in the movie, is uh, spends the first basically almost 20 minutes of this movie uh, on a stakeout from a from an abandoned WeWork in Paris with a view of a hotel. He's there uh, to perform some kind of hit, but he is having to wait. And we get right inside his head from a long uh, voiceover that kind of starts this movie as we kind of learn about his psyche, his process, uh, his feelings about, you know, how to go about doing his, just his, honestly, his feelings about lots of different things and his different philosophies. I almost started the podcast by uh, saying, uh, joining us today, you know, to him, weakness is empathy is weakness. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's one of the one of the one of the more memorable lines of this movie. But yeah, we're we're getting all kinds of uh, uh very uh, good insights from uh the killer as we uh, start this movie. But like eventually, you know, he actually you know sees his mark. He has to do his job, and he misses, and he kills what appears to be some kind of dominatrix that is in this hotel room with the guy he's there to hit that he wasn't planning on being there. And then he has to go on the run, and there are kind of consequences of that when he gets back to one of what we assume is maybe one of his uh actual residences he he finds that you know it's been broken into and his girlfriend has been uh, harmed and he she barely survived but he then has to go on a mission to you know figure out who all was responsible for this including his handlers and whoever they hired to like you know clean up the mess that that he made and we're kind of globe trot around with him while he tries to go you know uh f- seek vengeance uh and it's a uh, you know it's it, it kind of turns onto a globe trotting thing, but in some ways kind of turns that idea of the globe trotting serial killer on its head. Uh, Elijah, I'm curious, you know, uh, as I kind of indicated to me in the movie, you know, Fincher, you know, no stranger to you know uh, any kind of subject matter that involves uh, murders or killers of different kinds. You got you know Seven, you got Zodiac, you got uh, Mindhunter. Uh, this is not exactly uh, new terrain for him, but in some ways it kind of is. So I'm, I'm wondering as you uh, as, as you saw this, uh, or whether we going into this or after you've seen it, I'm wondering what what your kind of thoughts are at this point on 
you know, Fincher, you know, uh, doesn't make movies super often. We probably all wish he'd work more, but the way he works, and I want to talk a little bit because people have talked about the meta aspect of this story as well for him, even though, you know, he, he didn't write this, but it was, it was written by uh, Andrew Kevin Walker, who I, who wrote seven too. So he's someone he's worked with before. And I think, I believe he's been a script doctor in a couple of his other movies too. So, uh, you know, he, he didn't write it, but like, I think there's people have kind of analyzed how maybe there are meta aspects to this story with respect to Fincher's process as a filmmaker. But I'm wondering, you know, given that you're you're very familiar with his work like what you think kind of draws him to you know subject matter involving murder at this point and why you think this might have been something he wanted to take on uh given that it's a a pretty straightforward story for uh by for him i would say yeah uh, right because you know he there's always the famous uh interview clip with fincher i think it was um, I'm trying to remember what movie it was during the production of it may have been Gone Girl, um, you know, where they got him in a <clears throat> kind of a press interview or something. And he said, uh, uh, you know, he's kind of, he was asked a similar question about what drew him to the story. And, uh, you know, one of his kind of angles was basically taking a look at this sort of demented relationship. And and he said that um, uh, basically everybody's a little bit perverted. Hmm. And that's I, why- I do remember that. Yeah everybody kind of has this bone in their body that is you know that that tingles about about the darker side of life um and so uh you know i think a movie about a a movie that's kind of supposed to be delving into the psyche of a a professional killer right that's a a dark area of humanity that people don't get a really a, a look a look at most of the time and so i think superficially right there's that angle to it but honestly i don't think that's what this movie's going for and i don't think ultimately that's what fincher cares about um i mean i think it is i i will say that yes narratively speaking it is a dive into the psyche of a of a professional hitman but i think there is a whole other kind of aspect of this film that is that's a a much broader commentary and it's something that fincher has also been kind of interested in uh throughout the rest of his career and and so for me i would actually not really clump this movie in with the the sevens or the zodiacs or the you know mine hunters or girl with the dragon tattoos of of fincher's career I, I would actually put this more on the same plane as a fight club or a social network, actually, hmm. where it's uh, it's it's an investigation of a uh, <laughs> of a kind of person and a kind of lifestyle and a kind of generation. And, and honestly, my biggest takeaway watching the movie, because I, I know that I went into it the same way a lot of people did which was like, wow, this looks very typical for Fincher, right? Um, That's what I went in kind of expecting. And what I ended up coming out with was a movie that was honestly a lot uh, funnier than I thought it was probably going to be. It, it's I would say that it's probably Fincher's funniest movie in a long time, but also a film that that to me felt less like a specific investigation of perversion in the same way as you know seven or something like that or or gone girl or whatever uh and more of uh the the story as an analog for 
a, a a kind of person and a group of people and we can talk about this my my theory kind of at length later but ultimately i kind of viewed this movie as like a sequel to fight club hmm. I, I feel like I, yeah I, th- I, th- I feel like i heard someone offer a similar theory at some point but i'm wondering was there a certain point was it in that first 15 minutes where we're just with this guy in a voiceover or was it at some other point where you were like oh this isn't exactly the kind of movie you might have thought if you had just been looking at the marketing when did you realize oh i'm in for something a little different it was definitely in the in those yeah. first in that first scene. Were you, because, in, in, were you in, were you put off by that first scene at all? Because like I was watching with my dad and grandpa, and they were just like, "What the hell is this?" I thought I was watching a movie about a, a kid, like with a bunch of. I thought they thought they were going into an action movie, and I, I didn't necessarily have that expectation. Like I was getting a shoot 'em up from the beginning. But even <laughs> me, I'm like a. I, I just in general, I'm a bit put off when movies rely on voiceovers too much. So I was a bit thrown that that was the way they decided to go with this. Though I, I mean, I get what the purpose it served was. So how did you react to this? Because it was like a very very surprising way for this movie to go uh a very surprising way in my opinion for the movie to start i was on board man yeah. i try i you know i i try not to go into movies with too many preconceived notions about what it's gonna be um you know I, and there's 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 always two sides to that coin right and, and you could argue that because most of the time i tend to select what movies i go and see based on who made it and who was involved in making it that I maybe set myself up for disappointment sometimes, but that's, I, I find that I, I, I personally, I think I get less disappointed um, because I'm not expecting the movie to be one thing. It, it was funny. I will say uh, just a slight detour. Right. I think I mentioned to you before I at least mentioned in our chat, right. That it's like the first place I saw a trailer for this movie was on in primetime football. <laughs> primetime prime NFL was where they, I saw the first like actual trailer for this movie. And I was like, huh. That's an interesting, you know, you're, mar- you're mm-hmm. definitely marketing to a certain demographic here. Yeah, you're going to get a bunch of dads and grandpas that are like, you know, are, are expecting a, like a hardcore action movie. And then they're going to be, they're going to yeah. be thrown like my dad and grandpa. <laughs> yeah. And so we, and, and, and then I mentioned, I think even after the movie came out, I was watching football and they were playing uh, like the Smiths as part of the, as part of like their broadcast audio package <laughs> for the games. And I was like, they, they like, this movie is very distinctly making fun of the kind of people that would be watching this. <laughs> and yet it is the, it, it, that's who they're marketing to. So I thought that was kind of funny, but um, so yeah, so going in to see it, right, obviously. And then having that, that opening scene that it has all of the touches of Fincher, right? The precision, the, the pace, the slow, you know, the kind of methodical element to it um really sharp lensing and a kind of um a kind of uh competence porn aspect right like a guy being good at something okay but um, is he is he good well no but well hold on i will get to that, right? that is a whole discussion right yeah he's not he's not actually good but he appears to be good right so all of that juxtaposed with just kind of the absurdity of everything that he does from the you know the constant smiths playing in the background the thing about the like mcdonald's it's like the only thing we ever see him eat in this movie is like the shittiest like <laughs> like he's just absorbing nutrients in the most like he eats mcdonald's food. but purely for the protein he throws the bread yeah. away right exactly yeah so there's there's all these touches and of course his you know the laconic uh narration where he's just sort of musing about nothing in particular and saying a lot of shit that if you actually parse it is completely insane (laughs) like 
so so yeah i was i was certainly caught off guard but i think it's it for me it was easy to get with um because i think it makes it clear very you know venture and and andrew kevin walker are making it very clear early on what they're going for so yeah i I, again i Oh God, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I was a little, like I said, I was a little thrown uh, during the voiceovers, voiceovers and whatnot. And I kind of like, but like, you know, I, oh, and one thing I will say, and like you said, it's a separate, it's a separate discussion as to like, you know, whether or not like that guy is, uh, you know, actually any good at what he does. But like one thing he, that is fun to, it is fun to watch him like operate regardless of what the answer to that question is. So <laughs> once he actually did have to like run from the scene, that was still incredibly well done. There's like, again, there's not actually a lot of action action in this movie though. I'm sure we'll talk about the one really big action scene, which is incredibly well done, but it, 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 it I, I, even if I had my reservations is sitting through that part. Cause even, and I actually watched the movie again. Cause on my first viewing, I fell asleep for like 15 minutes, like 45 minutes in, I started it late on like a Saturday night. Like, like when I had been like, you know, or like late on like a, I think the same Sunday night, maybe that like I drove back from like, from like seeing this movie with family or the same Sunday at like, it might've been like the same Sunday night or something that I had like had a six hour drive that day from. So it was just a long day and I was tired. So I, I that fit, missing that 15 minutes, like hurt my uh, understanding of the second half of the movie. I had to watch again. And I appreciated that first stretch even more in the second viewing, but like, I definitely was like in regardless on either viewing, like from the moment he had to escape the hit, I was more into it. And I, I just thought it's fun watching this guy and his ways of like, moving through the world in an unassuming but efficient manner, even if we can talk about there's different, there's a discussion to be had as to like how efficient he actually is his job. Because I think in, that, that's getting lost in a little bit of the discussion about this. I, I've heard people make the point, Oh, he's good at it, but he's good. At, he's not actually that good at his job, but other people just kind of like broadly describe him as like an efficient operator. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true, but there are moments of like real, you know, efficiency and how he just has to move through the world in a way that like allows him to get where he needs to go that I did actually find uh, pretty interesting. And, uh, and, and he, and he basically, I mean, the movie, I should say the movie is like divided up into about five really distinct discrete parts. And, uh, and really just the first part is really that hit in, in Paris and then just having to get out of town where he goes home, which ultimately ends up being a mistake. But that, I mean, that's pretty much it. I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to talk about the movie, but like, I, I think I might just want to kind of move through in that manner at this point. There are, there are moments of funny in that, in, in the monologue, like you said, and even when he's like kind of wandering around with the, with, with the McDonald's and all that. But I, I think like, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is like I, I was having trouble reconciling the fact that like I I I did I wasn't as much as respect as I have for Fincher I didn't enjoy that first part as much as I should have but like I could still recognize the competence in it all the same and uh and and enjoying kind of like watching Michael Fassbender like do his thing in a, in, a, in a particular way and then and then for me the movie like it, it it indisputably took off you know it was just I think it was like kind of challenging but you know I still like I still like I still had faith I was I never like I, I'm not the kind of guy that like will will write something off like my dad or my grandpa might I hope they don't listen to this and hear me like uh discussing uh, discussing their impatience too much though they wouldn't dispute the fact that they weren't that big of fans of the movie but um but yeah like you know you you get through it and then you're, you're really like I, th- I think what's really impressive too though and as I say like there's these five parts once I once I once once I kind of like got through that I think the movie moved like incredibly well and i'm wondering what your thoughts on that were as well because again like i think you accept the fact that it's not necessarily gonna be action-packed but i think it's pretty indisputable that like the movie like moves like incredibly well and at like a really a pace that keeps you like very engaged what did you think about how 
Fincher did kind of like break the movie up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the key element is that um, and, and to, you know, to, to a certain regard, right, um, the passage of time is an element in every Fincher film um, to, to different degrees, you know, but whether it's the time reversal of Benjamin Button or the, um, you know, the, the, con- the condensation of one night in Panic Room uh, or the, you know, the spread of years and years in Zodiac, right? Um, it, every film that he has, uh, you know, that he's made has some kind of, of element about the passage of time. Mm-hmm. And he usually incorporates that really well into the edit. And this film is no different. The passage of time uh, plays an important role in this movie. And I, I would say that, you know, we see the passage of time play out in the edit in really clever ways. Um, there's a lot, a lot, I don't know if you noticed necessarily, but there's a lot of match cuts, a lot of basically like a shot, uh, you know, you get a wide shot of him waiting in the car. And then it cuts to the same wide shot of him waiting in the car, but it's daytime now rather than nighttime. Mm. Um, there, there's several instances of that. Um, and yeah, because it's a, it's also a little interesting. Like in that second part of the movie, actually, when I'm thinking, thinking hearing you talk about time, like I'm I'm thinking about like what it took for him to like say infiltrate that taxi company or something like that. I don't think that's something that necessarily happens overnight. And I think they do kind of in some ways. And I wasn't maybe thinking about it as closely as you might have picked up on, but hearing you talk about it, I'm like, I think they did in some ways kind of signify that that wasn't like a 12 hour job necessarily. Right, exactly. No, and the, the, the movie does a very good, uh, subtle job of kind of showing the passage of time in the context of the film, which is that, which is to say, it is methodical. It's not meandering. There is no wasted moment, even if a lot of time is passing, even if day is turning into night, is turning into day, is turning into another day, another week kind of thing. Um, all of this time that passes is condensed and seen through the perspective of the killer where it's almost as if nothing he's like it's like he goes into hibernation right he's he's simply working he's just doing his job and and time just just passes you know I'm, I'm so obviously fincher is not new to i want to ask you a little about the killer himself actually before i keep going chronologically through the movie and obviously fincher is not you know he, I, and, and this might go a little bit to what you're talking about with it being a little more analogous to your your, your Fight Club theory because he's not a stranger to unreliable narrators. But I, and I was trying to think for a second. It's like he's also necessarily not not necessarily a stranger to like having a movie be so heavily from one character's perspective either. I don't think we leave. Uh, I don't think we leave the Ben Affleck character in Gone Girl very much at all, if I remember correctly. There's no. I guess we do. There well, is a departure from the road. Yeah. Well, no, I take that back. No. Oh, I guess maybe it's more. I guess it maybe is a little more now just a fight club, and and there aren't even a ton of like. I, there's only maybe a. Now I'm thinking about. There's probably really only like a. There, there's like maybe in, in the social network, there's like maybe like one scene where the Winklevoss twins talk about what's going on, or like two with them, and like maybe like one other one where Saverin is like signing that contract. There's not a ton where Zuckerberg's not in the social network, and so like maybe he's not like you know. Uh, th- there's other versions of movies where he doesn't leave the main character all that much, but like I, I think this one is interesting in that like you're in his head in a way that maybe we aren't with most of his other movies, aside from maybe Fight Club in some ways, and that obviously has its own different flourishes on that. But like 
Well, and you could take this as an opportunity to offer your fight club theory as well also, but I'm curious if you had any other thoughts. Cause I think while we're, before I leave the second part of the movie, I think it's interesting to kind of talk about the killer a little bit. Cause like when you have a character like this, whose whose name you never learned, but you're in his head and, but he lives this very particular kind of life. I think the movie is, you know, very intentional with the way it, it parcels out information about him. So I'm wondering what, how, what you thought about how, like how, how you thought they decided to like, let us know as much as they decided to let us know about who this guy actually was. Cause that's the one kind of real glimpse we get into like his personal life and what he cares about. Yeah. And it's very slim, right? We, mm-hmm. we don't actually get mm-hmm. that much of a look into, into who he is behind the, behind the skin, you know, under the flesh kind of thing. Um, he is, he is still really opaque to us, even with his motivation laid out pretty clearly, which mm-hmm. is that his, his lover, wife it's not really clear what their relationship is but the woman he lives with mm-hmm. um was attacked and uh and that that's enough that really sets him off and i think there's you know people were i saw some people talking about how it's like oh, it's such like a slim motivation right like that's so that's so trite for a movie like this like oh he's he's his his partner gets attacked and so he's gotta take matters into his own hands kind of thing i wonder how those but, people feel about john wick Right. Yeah. But, but I think that's the, I think it's the point. I think the point of the movie is to show that it's, it's almost like he doesn't actually really care about, I think her name is Magdala Mm -hmm. uh, as like a person, because we don't really see her as a person in the movies from his perspective. She is just a thing that he owns in a way. And so his quest for revenge is no more really to us as as the audience uh, than him just sort of like going after somebody who mugged him. Like it may as well have been that he got robbed and that's why he goes on this quest for vengeance. I think the the kind of like vague pointlessness of it is the point. Um, And so, yeah, I liked that it kind of shows that it does, it really took something that in his perspective, right. Almost seems not unimportant obviously and it's not that the the woman's health and life is not unimportant is you know is unimportant but it's that in the scope of the narrative and what the film becomes what it becomes about this sort of unraveling of him as a person right and the unraveling of his procedure and his work um it's by the end of the movie it's almost a forgotten aspect until the quite literally the ending and i think that's that's kind of that that plays into the evaluation of the killer as a character and also you might not need to know that much more than that about him also because again if if nothing else again i think i think going to the next part of the movie i'll I'll have more fun talking about if he's good at his job but you know while while we're still within those first two parts like if nothing else that first part sets up the fact that he is he like has a very specific way of how he likes to do things and probably, you know, thinks he has his life very much in control. And so much so that like we come to learn that like that was probably something he shouldn't have been doing, like having that much, that many roots down in any one place. But he probably was really confident that like he had it all set up the right way. So like, you know, and he again, we see the right detail he goes and he puts into everything he does. So like if, if like even one detail, especially a, a bigger one in his life gets altered in some way especially someone close to him getting hurt if that that seems like an even bigger thing that probably could really set him off based on how we know how he's wired 
Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, right? Like I said, I think the, you know, ultimately this movie in each of the successive chapters is about, um, you know, kind of each chapter is him peeling back a layer of this process that he lays out in the first everything you need to know about his process is laid out in the first chapter mm -hmm. and so every successive chapter of the film is showing you him not doing those things or in you know or or either intentionally or unintentionally right uh kind of bending his rules and breaking them and um and so i think you know the, the second chapter and kind of setting up what what the stakes are it's more to as a, as a matter of you know kind of showing maybe not um I, I, yeah i would say it's a, it's it's a matter of of setting up a a way for him to head down that path and yeah i mean i i to me if we want i can talk about my my kind of my perspective on this movie as a as a sequel to fight club because i do think there is a kindred element to it i think that ultimately this movie's character the killer is a character from fight club 20 years later wow okay you know the the the, the general idea behind fight club was this uh extreme satire of a generation right of that kind of, of the, you know early to mid gen x who were coming you know who, who had come of age in the 90s and were now moving on to being members of the real world um and were struggling to find a meaning or find a place in the world for themselves and had you know invented this kind of of, of self-importance and it had combined with the cynicism of the era and the cynicism of the generation and the kind of um, the lack of, of guidance and maturity um, and this idea of perfection and of, of finding some way to break away from work. Right. Um, well, here we are now 2020s checking back in with those people. Now they're passing 40, right. They're getting older and where what where where are they in life right and it's like uh you know some people from the from from that from the the world of of fight club you can imagine maybe becoming quote unquote normal um you know kind of breaking free of that uh you know of that uh sort of self-imposed sense of of disjunction um but at the same time, you've got you've got plenty of people who I think you can sort of just look at as saying like they just sort of never really made it out. They never really changed. They just became this guy, right? They became addicted to work, to the idea of being busy, not letting yourself fall into the trap of thinking about life too much. Um or maybe they were just or maybe they were just smart enough, unlike me, to like drop out of law school and pursue a different <laughs> career path. Pursue a different <laughs> career path, right? Yeah. There you go. But, but yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, if you're talking about the killer as a character, that's who he is. He's somebody who grew up in that same era uh, and probably had that same realization 
in in their late 20s right early 30s coming into the new millennia and how do you take that change how do you take that aimlessness and i think this this difference from fight club right is or the the kind of the continuation of the idea from fight club is there are there are people out there right who who have just who have not found a way to reconcile their their cynicism about the world and have simply pushed it down and have turned into this guy right this kind of sort of he, he a lot of the humor of the film comes from how like self-assured he is and yet he is completely unreliable and constantly is not really in control and Gen X is just really useless, is what you're trying to say, right? <laughs> I'm not trying to say that. Finch, David Fincher's trying to say that. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that much of a stretch, right? That's always kind of been Fincher's mo. Is like that's the cohort he grew up with, and that's going to be sort of his commentary on on the world, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, I think I think there's little hints that that back up my my take. Um, one of which you kind of already mentioned, but I think is, uh, you know, is is worth diving into, right, is we don't know the killer's name, uh, but we get a lot of fake names and all of the fake names. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if you have already known this or if your audience is not aware yet, all of the fake names that he gives during the movie that are all appear on his documents are all the names of sitcom dads um from tv shows from the 70s basically archie archie bunker all in the family all that you know kind of yeah i think one of the one of the cheers guys uh george jefferson you know george jefferson, like that. right yeah, yeah. Um, um so so and 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 right and so why is he using the fake tv dad names you know why is he using fake names based on tv dads from the 70s uh, we, we again tap into this idea from Fight Club, right? In Fight Club, it's a point that's made a few times that it's like they're a generation without fathers. They're a generation raised by women. I think that's the, the exact phrase that Tyler Durden uses at one point. But it's mostly about how they have no like positive role male models in their lives, uh, no real positive role male models. And so they take to destruction to kind of replace it to, 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 as an outlet for that angst. Well, and yeah. so go ahead well it was oh i mean i don't know i know exactly sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but it was just funny that you have to say that because it's like again we don't learn that much we don't learn about the killer's childhood but then we we do learn in that third the new orleans section of the movie that like you know he had some like this charles parnell character like who was his handler in the movie like was one of his law school professors who saw something in him and uh was like hey i i think you're wired for this other line of work basically so like we don't know exactly like how deep the relationship went other than him seeing him as a a pupil with some level of promise but like that was some other male figure of authority in his life and that's where it led him (laughs) right that is a male figure of authority that failed him very clearly and so and so yeah i think I think that it's pretty evident that it's it, it's it's tapping into that same Gen X angst. It's kind of just a second check in and say, you know, OK, these people, <laughs> you've not gotten better. In some ways, you've gotten worse. Um, and uh, and I think that underlies everything else through the rest of the film, especially in, you know, we were talking about the narrative and, and kind of how simple it is, really. It's just, just a sort of quest for revenge. 
but it's really about peeling back the layers of his of his process and this world that he is he's felt so confident in and yeah. and breaking down his obsession with his work and his worldview um exactly because like we i joked earlier about the you know the uh empathy is weakness and i forget i forgot the second part of that line and the weakness of something else i forgot what that was um but but basically like in that so in that new orleans section of the movie you know we see we see i mean look there though again there well yes there's not a ton of action in this movie and that in in the next uh in the next section of the movie we'll get to what that good action how much we probably both enjoyed that action scene but the scene in charles parnell's office is like for in incredibly well executed and very tense and I mean, just, I mean, in some ways, just as tense as the actual big action set piece of the movie. And, uh, and we, we see how ruthless he can be at that point. We kind of learn, you know, that he, he seems to like want to just like, you know, be very meticulous and, and killing all evidence. He shoots a nail gun through that computer where he somehow did know that like, that's where a lot of the relevant files on him were. Then he just puts that nail gun in Charles Purnell's chest. But then like his secretary is like, Hey, I can actually get you the names of these people you want. If you come to my house and she begs him to, uh, to doesn't even doesn't even have the expectation he's going to save her life, but just ask her to like you know not disappear her and like you know put 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 her in a vat of acid or whatever to make her body disappear. She's like, can you at least like kill me in a way so my family gets the life insurance money because that's something I really need and I'll help you if you do that. And you know we've seen like we've seen him like you know already on multiple occasions with that taxi driver and with Charles Parnell like just be completely ruthless and not show any level of empathy. And uh and and here he actually like he actually obliges her and uh when he when he when he just cracks her neck and throws her down the stairs which you know i mean it's 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 a gesture even if it's a it's a violent one it it shows us that he he's cracking a little bit uh with respect to her at least uh something something about that interaction got through to him so we're seeing him like you know uh, you know already bend his code that means a lot to him at some point so i'm wondering what you're thinking as you're watching that part of the movie and you've seen this guy for you know already half the runtime at that point like operate in this very one way and then actually like make a decision like that what are you thinking when you see when, when when you see that the filmmakers made that choice i i see it as just a a continuation of the trend right the mm-hmm. idea that this quest that he has put himself on is going to challenge his his worldview and his his way of operating um and that's i think it's just another example of that um it's empathetic which is not something he's he by his own account is really supposed to be partaking in um it is a weird perverted kind of empathy but it is empathy nonetheless right um and, and so when when that happens in the film, um, you, I think you, you're, you're at that point, you're starting to get a kind of a coalescing of the ideas of the film, him recognizing that he is maybe not as good at what he does as he might've thought. Um, besides his main obvious, uh, (laughs) screw up that, that kind of sets everything in motion even in that scene with Hodges, right? He he messes up. He he kills Hodges when he doesn't really mean to. He shoots Hodges in the chest with the, yeah. with the nail gun, and, it's, and he thinks and he has six minutes or something, right? Yeah, he says like, uh, he he does this math in his head, like he's got six minutes, and then Hodges dies and he's <laughs> right like, away. He's like, oh shit. Um, Which is actually supposed to be kind of funny, right? 
Yeah, like, it's, he's, it's, he's like so that, confident. He's so confident. He's like, I have exactly this much time. And then he just like starts spitting up his blood and like aspirates like right away. Right. So it's not a. Um, I think it's one of those things where it's like it's. <laughs> it's it's dark that whole section is very darkly funny um and it's it's just it's blossoming those ideas that were planted in the first and second chapter um into kind of how they're going to be presented for the rest of the film right um and 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 that that whole section is it is that that the pinnacle of that dark and funny he messes up killing hodges then after he kills hodges he like he you know dumps him in like a garbage can and bring is bringing him in the hallway to go downstairs and the guy in the elevator is like you know jokingly says you need help just getting rid of the body kind of thing um yeah and and we didn't talk too much about like i mean we got we already got enough left to cover still plus another movie so i didn't dwell on it too much but like i that like thinking back on the movie and it's been over a week since i rewatched it at this point like uh that almost in some ways thinking back on it feels like the shortest section as far as like i i have no idea if anything there's anything to back it up but like and maybe that's just you know a testament to how efficiently they did everything they did in that section of the movie it feels like it might have been shorter in runtime than the others but at the same time he um uh there's a lot of cool details that go into just him setting up getting into that building i i appreciated the detail that they put into every little thing he did and every little marker he he drew to draw on a logo on a hat or buying that trash can or like uh timing how long that door was open like there's a lot of cool details in going into doing that which is like it's like its own little heist movie within the movie or something yeah for sure and we i mentioned before right the idea of competence porn and for those listeners unfamiliar with it uh, competence porn is an idea that was coined in the uh, 2010s uh, when people were kind of going back and uh, starting to rewatch um, uh, West Wing and kind of figured out what made West Wing so good um, and and investigating uh, Aaron Sorkin's writing in general uh, and kind of d- developing this sort of micro genre or, or style of presentation of movies that are of, of wildly different storytelling and of different genres and whatnot, but that are all about people who are really good at doing a thing, doing the thing and being, uh, being, being um, visibly audibly smart while doing it. Right. Um, and and it, it could be everything from Moneyball to the Martian, right? Like people talking through um or working through problems and and doing this kind of visual problem solving and so what i like about that 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 third chapter is that it is very competence porn in a way right it is him doing all these like minute steps and details and kind of showing how good he is at his job but then at the same time it's also kind of like anti-competence porn not no, so I was, that's what I was talking about earlier, and I was like, I like seeing how he operates, though that doesn't mean he's good at his job, and that's that that whole section is a good example of that. Yeah, and that's it, right. So it's not, and and I think that is, you know, we're gonna eventually we'll talk about my favorite chapter, which is chapter five, where okay. you know we kind of talk about we get into what the the actual thesis of the film is, but the idea that he's he is he is dedicated to his work, but he is not really good at it. (laughs) He is not as good at it as he maybe thinks or as he once thought. Yeah. Uh, So five, five is the Tilda Swinton one, right? Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about chapter four. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's keep it. Let's let's keep it moving though. Let's go to Florida. Uh, I don't know. Did they say what part of Florida, the Florida one's supposed to be in? Uh, It's 
post it's a uh, coastal something where... i got me I've, I've seen people like refer to it as like saint pete and it, i think it's supposed Miami. to be saint i think it's supposed to be saint pete okay so you're old you're old neck of the woods kind of yeah. uh but like i mean but like i i also like i actually I don't have it up in front. do i have it up in front of me i, I would bet they might have shot that in uh I think they shot in New Orleans Louisiana. or Louisiana or Georgia. I think they shot in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, it, it felt it, it felt a little a little swampier even than uh, you're going to get in uh, the west coast of Florida, but or most parts of the west coast of Florida. But uh, in, in any event, like you know, he he's gotten those names from uh, Charles Parnell's secretary and has to go and you know track him down. And this is the first stop. He you know another thing is he he like uh, he screws up the. I guess he actually kind of screws up the dosage when he has to drug those dogs. Uh, that's another thing he gets wrong because that dog comes back to literally bite him later or almost literally bite him later. Uh, but, you know, whatever. He he gets into the house and, you know, maybe not as easy as he wants it to be, but he he gets it done. I mean, I don't know if there's a ton to say on this other than, like, it's it nice even if, like, again, I, I can come to a movie like this and enjoy it even if there's not as much action as you expect in a movie called The Killer. But it's nice at Fincher to remind us, like, I'm pretty great at everything I do. And if I want to make a kick-ass action scene, I can do a kick-ass action scene. What, 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 what stood out to you, though, about that sequence other than, like, yeah, that action was kick-ass? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's just a great scene. You got mm-hmm. Sala Baker, who is um, just a, a long time. That was one thing, uh, just a funny detour. I kind of love that a lot of the um, random sort of people in this film are uh, uh, like like Sala Baker, who plays the the brute. Um, I think the woman who plays the dominatrix that gets shot at the beginning of the movie, I think her name is Monique Ganderton or Granderton. Um, they, these are just like um, they're just like stunt people mm. from movies. Um, I think the the guy who plays. Uh, I think Jack Jack Kesey shows up for a minute too, who's also just kind of like a a grunt type, you know, shows up in movies sometimes. Um, so I, I did like that kind of dedication to just like pure technique, right? He's like, this character doesn't need a name, doesn't need a face, doesn't need to be recognizable. All he needs to be is capable of beating the killer's ass, basically. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, great fight, really well orchestrated, really well shot. Um and again, I think thematic and and kind of it kind of hits all of these points, right? There's some parts of it that are uh, darkly funny. Uh, he kicks the, uh, the the killer kicks the dude at one point, and the guy like lands ass first on like a an upturned chair leg that basically impales him. Um, it's pretty gnarly, but also like gnarly in the in the kind of like gross sort of darkly funny fincher way um but it's not pretty and that's the point right is he he's before this point the only thing we really know about him as an operator mm-hmm. is that he claims to have besides besides one guy who happened to die of a heart attack before he could kill him he's got like a hundred percent track record right and he even he kind of, he mentions being uh being up close and personal um as something that he likes to do. He doesn't like, I think, as he calls them like Annie Oakley jobs or something, where you're just shooting somebody from a distance. So whether it's poisoning somebody or be, you know, or or shooting somebody up close or something like that, he apparently relishes those opportunities, but he gets one here and he screws it up. Like it's a lot gorier and a lot nastier than it was supposed to be. <laughs> Yeah, he, uh, he, I don't think he totally had. I mean, that's the thing, though. It's like 
I guess he knows that he's going into it. He's seeing someone that's like a um. I, I get. I guess going into it, he should know that he's seeing he's he's seeing someone with some level of expertise. Like he's getting these names from the people that you know are his handlers. He should presume they are some other level of hitman at not. So you know, in a way, he. He, that's a mistake too. And he, it seems like he probably almost underestimated what he was walking into. So um, the question, the question then becomes right. Why does he fail to do like, why does he not do it the way that he might have, uh, a, you know, by his own rules. And on top of that, it, I, I forgot till now, like it was so not only that, but like he still struggled as much as he did, even though that guy already had a bum leg to begin with from, uh, the, the first, like, that was how he even got the drop on him kind of to begin with. Like he already knew that the guy had like, you know, uh, already had a bit of a leg gotten hit in the leg during the, during his pre during the initial job that he failed to finish. Cause he didn't actually kill the uh, killer's girlfriend, but yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the question then becomes, why did he, why did he not do the job the way that he probably should have? Mm-hmm. And the, I think the obvious answer is that he, again, he is this movie is all about him sort of faltering and and the cracks in his system showing and he takes the job too personally mm. what could have just been a nice easy poisoning or a nice uh you know simple arson becomes this gritty hand-to-hand thing that there's no point for well he, he doesn't need to extract anything from this guy besides his own personal you know feeling of revenge and it really it does go to like showing what kind of lapse in judgment he's having and that like at, at that things are should be it should in theory be very precarious for him at that point like he's already gone so far off book that like you know he should be just trying to get in and out as quickly as he can but it's it's funny though skipping ahead to section five like that you're making the point that in section four it might have been too personal because i think part of how you already noted that like in some ways um section five has some of the thesis of the movie he i mean he, he so he, he tracks down this Tilda Swinton character who is like kind of the other one that was responsible for the attempted hit on his girlfriend and uh I think that is in some ways is also very personal for him because he's observing how she's living life right and uh seems to actually be like enjoying it her life in a way that he can't even though like she presumably does something very similar for a living and I I, I don't exactly understand I mean I, I don't know it's not necessarily that important how because it, we're led to believe that, like, uh, that, like, especially when he when he, when he goes back and Charles Parnell's like, you weren't you weren't supposed to do that. Meaning, like, you know, go home after the hit and then have anyone you care about back at that home. Because, but like, you know, so it's my at, at that point, it's like kind of my understanding that like these people are supposed to just go off into the wind every time they do a job, and they're supposed to just have go bags everywhere and houses everywhere or whatever, and that's how they they stay. So it, 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 you you would think that's how they're being instructed to live life, but it seems like this Tilda Swinton character somehow is managing to like operate in this world, but like be a regular at a very nice restaurant on, in the Hudson Valley, uh, you know. But regardless, I, I and mean, regardless of me being a little uh, miffed by that, you know, it's like he seems to like really like. Well, it's funny because it's, I, I think, really an incredible scene with him and Tilda Swinton where, like, the killer says, like, what, like, nothing? Like, says, like, maybe two words. At the, I don't even know if he says anything. It's, like, all him reacting to her while she's, like, kind of just talking to him in the in, in, in the restaurant. But, like, at the same time, she reads him, like, a she reads him pretty easily and, like, in everything that is probably going through his mind as he is watching her. So, like, I mean, it seemed like that scene really left an impression on you, though. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, by that point in the movie, we've seen him throw out basically the entire playbook, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, the last bit of which is he's in the car, uh, waiting, you know, observing her and waiting for her. And he is, he's, 
he, he's like popping painkillers and he takes off his his heartbeat watch, which is like this key aspect of like kind of how he regulates himself. So he's way off the books here. Like he is just he's, <laughs> he's totally flying by the seat of his pants doing, you know, God knows what. And and I think it becomes clear in that moment, like you said, when he actually goes to confront her because he, he even gets a chance. He pulls up next to her at a stoplight and it's like he you, you see him kind of hold his gun. Right. And it's clear that he could just shoot her. He could just shoot mm. her and drive off. And I believe there, like, there's like cop, you hear like a cop car in the background, right? So, but he's weighing all these options, but he chooses ultimately to confront her. And yeah, and you're right. I mean, she she reads him straight through because she is a foil to him, right? She is everything that he is not. She's confident. She's, uh, you know, she's free of this kind of, this sort of implicit fear that he has of of not being the best. She does not let the work dictate her life. And yeah, to some degree, maybe it's her downfall. But the 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 I think the thesis of the film, right, is perfectly summed up in her her little joke that she tells him the story about the bear and the hunt, the hunter and the bear, um, where wherein the a hunter goes to hunt a bear. And when he misses the bear, the bear gives comes up to him and says to him, you know, you have a choice. I can either sexually assault you or uh you know or or kill you uh and of course the guy chooses life um as embarrassing as it is uh but comes back the next day angrier right and tries to hunt the bear again and again fails and again gets the same proposition and comes back the next day and tries to do it again and eventually the bear you know says to the hunter like you're not really out here hunting are you and it's it's it, it, there's it's funny, right? There's a dark humor to it, but it's so it's so accurate. It's so right for the killer, right? Where it's like it is he does not he is he has by de, by design emotionally detached himself from the work, from any meaning that he could draw from it. He has no he admits in the first chapter he's great at what he does because he does not give a shit. He does not care about the people. He has no political cause. He has nothing guiding him. Um, so then the question becomes, why, why does he do what he does? And why, is, why, why, why live life then? Why, right, exactly. Why have? Why not just kill yourself, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I, I think the answer might just like, be that he's a little bit, a little bit of a psychopath, I guess, too. I mean, he that, is, that, that, that might sure. just be the answer, but it, it's interesting because, like, again, he meets this character, and while, well, yes, the this whole, like, way of life might ultimately kind of be her downfall, she's you know, I mean, for just going off of like what their actual ages are, what's just I who knows how long she's been in that life, but maybe if she if they're anywhere near the ages of the actors, like she's been around for you know at least fifteen years longer than Michael Fassbender, maybe ten to fifteen years longer. I mean, she looks a little older in the movie, so I think it's safe to assume she's lived a longer life than him and probably gotten more pleasure out of life than like he ever has. So like you know who yeah. who who's really coming out ahead at the end of that encounter at the at the at the end of the day anyway. Yeah. Um and so and she reveals right the 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 fragility of his existence and the idea that he exists only to work only to do a job and that's to me that's like so fight club that's like right like he could be 
he could be typing up TPS reports. Uh, and it, it would be the same job to him. It would be, he would have the same level of self-obsession. He would have the same level of self-assuredness in his work, the same kind of dedication to the minutia. He just wouldn't be killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the fantastic quality of this story is that in that moment, you realize that none of this has been about assassination. None of this has been about professional professional hitmen. It's been about a job. Mm-hmm. And it could be any job. It could be, you know, it could be making a movie. It could be doing any of these things, right? And really what it is about the mentality of a person who does not have a reason for doing, for, for why they exist besides carrying out the job that they have found for themselves. Yeah, well said, but like, you know, given that this is kind of like, like you said, it's the thesis of the movie, that might be one of the, that, that scene in the restaurant might be the most, it might be one of the top three scenes of the year in movies to this point. I haven't really started making that list yet. So taking all that into account, what do you make about like the fact that they, that we're not really, that they, that, that they don't end the movie there? And uh, do you, did you, did you appreciate what they did with this final, you know, act in Chicago and the very final, like very, very final scene of the movie? Did you like where, where it went, even if like that is inevitably somewhat of a come down from where we were before? Yeah, I mean, I, I did. I was a little taken for a ride at first mm-hmm. when I when the first time I saw this, um, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of the whole thing with Claiborne, where mm-hmm. he goes to. You know, he goes to meet the he goes to meet his maker in a way. He goes to meet the person who ordered the the hit on him and his girlfriend. Um, and it turns out that this guy, the uh, initially the guy that he was doing the job for in the first chapter, who he failed to finish the job for, um, it turns out that this guy is just a guy is just kind of a rich prick played by Arliss Howard, uh, who's always great, and I love Arliss Howard um he was in mank right yes he's in mank he's 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 been around man he's he's been he was in another movie i mentioned earlier he's in moneyball a great film right, um right, right. but uh in any case right we get we get all this process again he's he's once again doing his job doing his work and then he goes and finally meets claymore face to face and uh there's there's kind of a twofold thing that happens which is that he enters the scene with the narrative advantage right he's physically he surprised claiborne he has a gun claiborne doesn't he's got the like he's got this leg up on claiborne so why does he not kill him right why does he not just shoot him and be done with it um and i think it's because there is one very important and very quietly stated revelation in the scene which is when Claiborne tells him that he paid $150,000 to have the, you know, to, for for insurance, as Hodges apparently called it, which is in that moment, right, just kind of it's a line that just sort of flies by. But it's it's brilliant because what's, what's, what's happening is the killer is being told the value of his own life after for so long believing himself to essentially be like near godhood right <laughs> like he, he is so good at his job he is so expensive people pay so much money for his for his uh you know well, for well, well not only the value of his life but also the value of just like well, yeah it's the value the, of his the, 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 the value of i guess bs his life but also like just him as an entity within that world 
It's like, right. it, like if, if, if they're willing to like kill you off for 150,000, like they're just not that, like you're not hot shit as you might've thought. Because yeah. like the, 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 like the, in theory, like the handler or any, or anyone else that Charles Pernell like might answer to, even if I, I, it's not clear necessarily if he does, but like in theory, you would think one of them could like step in and be like, yeah, we're going to protect him, but no, like we'll, we'll let him go for a price. Sell him up for $150,000, mm-hmm. which in the grand scheme of things, is certainly not a lot of money certainly not what the killer seems to think he's worth and it completely takes the wind out of his sails well, why goes, do you, but why do you think that leads to him not killing Erlis howard because it does it's just like it, it it's like a knockout punch basically it sends him from having this narrative advantage of being the the killer being the badass that everybody thinks that he is that he thinks he is to being upon again in that moment to just being a worker and so the scene becomes something that i was not expecting the you know ultimate climax or denouement of this movie to be right which is like it's essentially like salary negotiations like he's basically saying like he, he's he that's basically what becomes it's almost like in a weird way he has this like he has like he, he has this like sort of weird respect for Claiborne that's completely unearned, but it's like this like white man to white man kind of thing with Claiborne where it's like he's killed all these people. He's he's just burned his way through all of these people that were obstacles to him, but he gets to Claiborne and Claiborne is like his boss and he cannot envision killing his boss. He can't, he literally cannot imagine breaking the like the power structure he completely like jerks out like he, yeah, he totally uh, that's interesting I, I hadn't quite thought of it that way that's interesting I, I i didn't necessarily have a better theory i didn't know if he like you know maybe personally saw some value in like you know making this guy felt like he owed him one uh i mean yeah but that's what i mean about it being like like why, why would he think that there's any value to having claiborne owe him one he could just kill him like he could mm-hmm. just kill him and walk away from it but he is viewing it like like salary negotiation like just being like oh i can this person is powerful and rich and i can get something from him kind of thing he totally loses it like and i think it's i thought it it, it definitely took me for a ride at first but i i really liked it okay retrospect so last thing then because we really got to keep it moving because i got i gotta go to work tomorrow and it's been a long day we got another (laughs) movie to talk about like or two things i guess one like again he's interacting here with a billionaire and i feel like i've heard a lot of people we haven't really talked about it much a lot of the some of the coverage i did listen to about this movie though like they did talk a lot about like anything fincher is trying to say about in uh in in, the, in i'm forgetting the, the writer's name again um uh andrew, andrew and, kevin walker andrew kevin walker a lot of people talk about anything that they're trying to say about capitalism because again we've already mentioned some of the brands but amazon plays a, a big role in chapter six uh we, we talk about mcdonald's we work whatnot a lot of that stuff going on and i don't know if i was thinking so much about that as the movie was going on but here it's like he he is kind of like you know deferring a little bit to the billionaire at the end like he just kind of like i mentioned a little bit was that something you were that cognizant of as the movie was going on did you feel like you were there was any messaging to you going on about about capitalism at all or do you think they were more just trying to like kind of set the scene for the world he was operating in and making it clear oh no they're operating in this world not some world we just created for the sake of this movie uh i i was definitely cognizant of it i mean it's it's definitely there obviously all you know the, the corporate product placement in a way uh, is very relevant 
Um, but I, it, it, if if we want to go there, I mean, I can we can sort of briefly touch on because people are talking about the way that this is a movie about uh, about Fincher himself, right? That's the thing I was going to ask you about, but I mean, if you're saying they're, they those kind of go together, then I mean, yeah, I'd be curious to say why you would think that. Yeah, I think so because I, I think yeah, you can read it as sort of the the killer's deference to corp to to corporate America, but it also felt very much like a sort of a self-satire of Fincher. Uh, you know, Fincher sort of looking at himself in his career, right? And if you look at the killer as being a sort of insert for Fincher, it's it's very self-deprecating in a humorous way, right? He's extremely exacting, knows exactly, thinks that he knows exactly how everything works, frequently screws stuff up and has to cover his own, you know, his own ass. And at the end of all of it, after all of this brilliance, right, and all of this hard work and 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 all of this killing, right, he gets to go talk to the boss, and mm-hmm. then he's just sort of like, "Ooh, I'm sorry." <laughs> like, also, it's like it's not even like a. It's not even. Yeah, he's not. It's not sorry, but it's. Well, no, 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 I was just gonna definitely. say it's like it's, it's it's just like like the difference, and it's not even like the boss strikes an imposing figure like there are it's it's a guy that looks like rs howard like a guy and he's like i don't know he's like late 50s early 60s and it's like like a average build and just like wearing a t-shirt <laughs> it's not right. like he's striking an imposing figure he's just like a, a rich white dude who he does know to be powerful yeah exactly and so it, it felt kind of like a like a commentary on the idea of like a studio you know a sort of studio exec right who, who wields no like physical power or no no like real control over the killer slash david fincher but who there is still this like sense of like uh, you got to do what he says sort of thing um and and so yeah i thought that that was i thought it sort of sort of all coalesced there um you know fincher has made a lot of movies that he's been very uh very much in control and very strong on but he's also talked at length about the movies that he wasn't fully in control of and how some of those embarrass him and how some of his work, you know, especially he slags on Alien 3 a lot, right, um, as being one that he like, he just really does not want to have anything to do with uh, because, the you know, the, the producers took it away from him. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of like he's standing there with a gun, but he doesn't really have any recourse. He has no real way to you know to exert his power there i i appreciate those insights because like i i, I get again i thought about that stuff and the meta aspect of it because i heard people talk about it so much but at the same time i i couldn't help but keep in mind that like again i didn't necessarily think the killer was that good at his job at least as we saw it for a lot of this movie or at least like on this on, on this particular hit he didn't do a good job despite all of his meticulousness and like we think while fincher is known for being incredibly meticulous he's also known for like putting out really good movies so i didn't want to read too much into that uh, and project too much onto Fincher when, again, his meticulousness also often is a means to a very good end, and it's not exactly what was the case here. So, I so I appreciate you putting a different a different perspective on that for me. All the same, with respect to uh, the corporate aspect of it, which I thought maybe people were overreading a bit too, but I think it's I, I think I I appreciate or. I, I think I think it's a good way of looking at it, the way as you just put it. And I don't actually have that much to add, but I'm glad we hit that point before we wrapped up. But any other final thoughts on the killer before we move on, Elijah? Because we got to move on. No, I mean it's just a it's a well put together film. I had a mm-hmm. lot of fun with it. Um, I'm glad you know I'm I'm glad that a movie like this can get made, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that 
you know, Netflix was willing to put up the money for this to to happen. I don't know what the um, budget was, but like they, it, it seems like he probably did it on a uh, like a reasonable budget, but like all the same, like not a lot of places probably fund something of that budget, whatever it was, besides Netflix. So kudos yeah, to them for that. Was, else. Yeah, mid mid high range budget, probably you know nearing the hundred thousand mark. You mean, know, mean hundred million? Pro- yeah, sorry, hundred million. Pro- probably a, little, a bit less, but um, you know he's he always does a lot of like VFX and optical and crazy shit behind the scenes, so. Um, but also just I, I liked the the continuity of um of technique. Uh this is his second movie uh that he shot with Eric Messerschmidt. You know, he did uh he did Mank with Eric Messerschmidt as well, but before that he his, his guy was um uh Jeff Cronenweth. Um and Jeff Cronenweth I think has just uh kind of moved moved on to do different things. Um and uh and so uh fincher has has been able to sort of work with eric messerschmidt who is a protege of jeff cronenweth and i think it it works really well there's not you know he's fincher's got a very exacting style and so i think it's great that he's found you know another camera team uh, another production crew you know that that can basically meet his stylistic demands to the same you know, high marks as he's always been known for. All right. Uh, good, good insight there as well. And I mean, hopefully it's not another, you know, three years before we see another Fincher movie and he gets the game together again sooner rather than later. All right. And now we'll move on to our other movie today, which is uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon. This is a, a long gestating project that has been around for quite a bit. I learned a little bit more about the pre-production process over the last couple of days, Elijah, which I think is very interesting, right? get into its production history a little bit as well. But uh, it was uh, a follow-up to 2021's Last Duel in House of Gucci, which he had come out within a couple months of each other for COVID-related reasons, I believe. And uh, and this is a movie that stars uh, Joaquin Phoenix as the title character and, uh, you know, tells the story basically of Napoleon's almost entire adult life from the time he was, you know, uh, just kind of rising up the military ranks to basically, you know, his time, uh, the end of his life in, uh, in exile. And... Uh, Elijah, I mean, I, we've talked about historical movies before. You're you're probably you're just more of a history buff than I am. Like, I didn't know a ton going into this, other than like you know, I knew Napoleon. Like, you know, he had his reign. He did a lot of military things, and it didn't end so hot because of his own ambition. That's basically all I knew. I didn't know a ton of details beyond that. Uh, you know, and and that which that was it. And so I was like, all right, I, I know I'm probably going to learn something when I go to see this, but I'm guessing you knew a little more detail about Napoleon's reign than I did. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious, like when, and I know there've been different attempts throughout history to like, you know, capture a bit about Napoleon I, to varying degrees of success. I don't know how much of that you've seen, but uh, I'm wondering just g- given how, whatever level of knowledge you had about Napoleon going in and, and if you did know most of the high points of his biography, what are you then hoping to get when you hear that Ridley Scott is trying to cover his life in such detail that there might be a four-hour director's cut out there? Uh, like, w- what are the main things you want out of a Napoleon movie? And like, uh, how did Ridley Scott do in accomplishing uh, giving you those things? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I the, the Napoleonic era is is not an era that I would say I have like a you know it's certainly not to the degree of like the Middle Ages, right, which we've talked about or you know, the early modern era, you know, th- those are the periods that I'm much more uh, uh, academically familiar with. Um, I've, I've obviously, <laughs> I have the age of the age of Napoleon on my shelf right here. I have, you know, a lot of the, the military history books from the period. Um, 
but uh you know all of the the sort of nitty-gritty i mean he was a guy that ruled for a long time uh I, you know in, in proportion to uh you know the his rise to power and of course also uh you know he's somebody who did a lot um in uh in in terms of you know what what he the time that he had or i guess i rather i should say sorry i think i just messed up he he did not rule for a very long time all mm. things considered uh he only ruled for about you know 10 15 years depending on how you view his time as first consul um mm. and and so yeah so in comparison to the amount of time that he did rule for the amount that he accomplished in that time uh is pretty uh pretty crazy to kind of sum up and and uh i i was curious how this movie was going to portray him because he's a he's a figure that inspires a lot of uh debate and argument even today which is really impressive for a historical figure to be honest uh usually a couple of generations removed from a historical figure you have a pretty good idea of what people think of that person um with obvious allotments for reassessment right you have people for example richard the third you know you go for hundreds of years with the portrayal of Richard III being Shakespeare's Richard III, right? Of the hunchbacked villain, you know, mustache twirling lunatic kind of thing. And then here we are years later, the historians look back, they look at the actual record, you look at, you know, things from the time and you say, oh, okay, maybe he wasn't really that bad. Hmm. Um, so there, there are revisions to to perspective. But Napoleon, I mean, the, the arguments about his rule started in 1815 right after right after he was gone uh and they ran have, have run the, the whole length of history since i i would i would not say that there is any kind of historical consensus on whether napoleon was a you know a quote-unquote good ruler uh, or a good person or on the value of his accomplishments and so going into this movie i didn't i i really didn't know what to expect i don't um, okay I was I was mostly just hoping that it wasn't going to be boring. Like, well, that's I think it's interesting that you say that because one, I don't think it was boring. I was very entertained. Two, I don't know if it really gives you a straight answer as to what your the other question you posed right before you said that was as to like whether or not is we should give a thumbs up or a thumbs down or like a be horrified <laughs> or or like respect his accomplishments. Like, I don't think it really gives you a clear answer on that as long as the movie is. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that it gives you a direct answer, although I do think it I think at the end it sort of takes it takes a perspective, though it's less a perspective, I think, on Napoleon specifically and more on the the idea of, quote unquote, great men. Right. Uh, you know, great man theory and the idea of a. You know, the impact, the outsized impact that one person can have on the world and sort of does call into question whether that's a good thing. Whether or not you think Napoleon himself was a good or a bad person or a good competent ruler or a bad ruler. Um, so, yeah, so so going into the movie, I was mostly hoping it just wasn't going to be boring. I was hoping for an angle. Um, and I, I feel like I got that. It's mm -hmm. uh, it was a, it, it was a an unexpectedly funny movie. Uh, it was a, a, a sort of colorful film. And and yeah. As a history person, I can accept, I can admit and accept that there were some liberties taken with, uh, with, with the, the historicity, with the, you know, how accurate it was in some regards. 
but frankly i don't think any there's like people getting so in a twist about the historical accuracy really? okay i hadn't seen i hadn't seen that really yeah i mean people are just like all over even people that you and i know <laughs> oh, okay. go go and check the chat right okay. not our chat but go, go and check the discord right um no, it's and I just don't see any of those inaccuracies being so egregious as to the point of being like offensive or sculpting the movie into some kind of, you know, into something that it, that it shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, if if, if if these are more so about some of the different military machinations and moves and timelines and battles and what was happening when, like, I I don't again, I haven't seen a lot of those critiques. Uh, oh, I, I, I think I, I don't think a lot of that really matters for what the film is trying to do necessarily. I think it's more like you said, one thing I will agree with you that maybe it does succeed on is like to the extent it wants to cut down that idea of the great man. I think it does through its depiction of Napoleon and his personal life a little bit and and uh, how he maybe lets that maybe bleed into or dictate some of the decisions as he's being driven in his professional life uh, and some of the ways in which Joaquin is directed. Like, I think, I think it does a pretty good job of doing that. And if that's its goal first and foremost, good, because I mean, one thing I'll say, and I don't have a ton to add on it. I don't have a lot to analyze with respect to it, but I just wanted to kind of say it so I can say, I addressed that part of the movie was that I think the, I think it's pretty cool that Ridley's like as old as he is and can pull up battle scenes like that. Like, you know, uh, I think, and I mean, I know some of that's probably computer generated, but some of it's not. And uh, it's really freaking impressive. And I mean, look, I, I have nothing else. Like, I think some of that's worth the price of admission anyway. And so it's like, okay, like, look, I just need to see him build up his military career. That's fine. If any, if, if people are, you know, tripping over how much, of, what depiction of what war is like, you know, was whatever. Like, I, I don't really care about that. I, I got what I needed to out of, from the movie, from an action perspective. And, uh, and I, I don't know if you have more kind of feelings on that or if any of the critiques you're alluding to are about kind of his military accomplishments or decisions or anything like that. But like, I feel like the movie did a pretty good job of conveying like why he might've been able to amass power in the first place. I have some more questions about like, is maintaining and wielding of that power maybe, but how did you feel maybe just about like the movies, like, you know, depiction of uh, depiction of its wars from a filmmaking perspective and also how that kind of like, you know, helps you uh, understand why he was as respected as he was as a military mind. Yeah, I, I would say so. Right. There's four, uh, four battles or four campaigns, right? That the movie is kind of centered around. You have the siege of uh, Toulon at the beginning. You have uh, the Battle of Austerlitz during the 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 war of the uh, which coalition was it? The Third Coalition, I think. Uh, I think there was like seven of them. So pardon me if I don't get the exact <laughs> coalition right. I think Austerlitz was during the Second Coalition. Uh, you have the invasion of Russia and the, the the Battle of Borodino during the French invasion of Russia, and then you have ultimately you have Waterloo at the end, and and so these four battles or campaigns sort of frame the story in a way, right? And it's it's very subtle how they do it. You don't you don't really think about those as framing devices, but they are there. That is the these kind of these points, these turning points in his career. You have Toulon, which is his his rise to power his his meteoric ascension where his his star goes through the roof because he he makes a name for himself you have austerlitz where he cements himself as the emperor right before that he was the top nobody took him seriously now he is the emperor 
and you have Borodino where it's like, oh no, this guy can bleed. Um, and then of course Waterloo, his ultimate failure, his you know the end of his career, right? Um, so those those I think they work as framing devices, especially in a movie that is about a guy who really only knew how to how to do war. Uh, and it's like it, well, you can disagree about whether you know if, is that an accurate assessment of his career, but that's what the movie is saying, and I'm fine with that. Well, also like through its final title cards, it kind of tries to like. <laughs> Through those final title cards, it kind of tries to, or uh, it tries to kind of make a bit of a statement about like, I don't, I don't know what it's trying to do, but it shows like the amount of deaths increasingly going up with every single decision he makes throughout his military career. So it's, it's not necessarily also bowing down to him either. It's just, you know, it's presenting them at those different points of his life. Yeah, uh, right. And so from from a and from a purely technical perspective, I thought they were very well done. Um, I think the you know the the you get a narrative sense through the way that these battles are portrayed right the siege of Toulon is like uh, is kind of hectic and crazy um he you know he char- he's in the back lines and then he charges in uh I, again i don't know that that necessarily happened but it's sort of showing right that it's like he is he's primed he's ready to go he wants that recognition and that power and he is willing to do dangerous things to get it and so that 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 siege is exciting in that regard um you have austerlitz which another one where a lot of the historians are like groaning about how it's like completely not how the battle of austerlitz went <laughs> you know again i don't really care because the final result is the same he it, the, the final result of the battle of austerlitz was between 25 and 35000 uh, coalition troops killed which i don't really care if they died by being shot and you know and bayoneted to death or whether they fell into a frozen lake the point is the same it was a a crushing uh you know decisive victory for napoleon it literally ended the holy roman empire in one fell swoop yeah as, as long as you like understand who's winning like i don't really in that and it, it looks good i don't really care yeah. that much and, and so in a way I, I was glad that there was a, a complete editorial license to make <laughs> that battle look like what it is because i think it's one of the coolest looking battles i've ever seen on screen it's it's so like grimly iconic the the, the sweeping shots of the you know of this like t- town that they have set up in the middle of the lake right and the just the overall vibe is so like dark and and dusty and gross and um and yeah and i think i think it just it's it's really it, it has a very striking quality to it and even if it's not totally accurate i think for the sake of the movie itself they do a decent job going in of like giving you the exposition as to like what their plan is going to be for most of this stuff so it does make it a little easier to follow at least kind of the, what's going on than maybe other war movies sometimes are um, you know, so give it credit for that. Give, again, give Ridley really credit for the uh, the technical accomplishments there. But I think we're both in agreement. They they really did they did well by those portions of the movie, just from how it looked. And as you as you so well explained, like you know how, how it you know sets up the story in certain ways. But uh, I I do want to talk about the stories like off the battlefield too. And I guess my thing 
and we can talk, I mean, obviously a big part of this, Vanessa Kirby plays Josephine, who is uh, Napoleon's wife, who, you know, we see uh, the beginning of the relationship and kind of the, like uh, the, the end of their marriage as she's unable to bear children and uh, everything in between, which, you know, they have their own uh, at times funny, at times tragic uh, back and forth in their relationship. Uh, we, we see all that. And, um, and I think that, that that is a big part of this movie. Um, but I'm curious, like how they, how you feel like Joaquin and Ridley and uh, the the the, the uh, it's written by uh, David Scarpa. So how the how everyone involved in making this film kind of came into and how they did and I guess getting you inside of his psyche. You know, it's funny we just talked about kind of getting inside that killer psyche in this one here. Where I, I think it's important when like you know there's a there's a whole complex named after this man. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, people, people are going to come into this movie with like preconceived notions of like who this guy really is. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying I wanted commentary on his height within the movie or anything like that. More just like, you know, people are going to come into here thinking they're getting some kind of performance though. You probably shouldn't assume, you know, what Joaquin Phoenix is going to do at any point in any performance. But I mean, at the same time, I think it was a, it's a tall order to like, just be like, to try and convey someone of this magnitude, you know? And I, I'm, I'm curious how you thought, whether it be like kind of uh, through his actions on the battlefield, like specifically him through the performance, through his relationship with Josephine, how did you ultimately come away feeling that they did in trying to at least in, at least giving you one take on this guy. Cause I don't think any of us can, none of us knew the guy. We can't say exactly. I mean, we don't really have act. We, 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 we have historical documentation of the guy. We don't have like, you know, we don't have video footage. We don't, we can only, we can only kind of speak from what we know, but how do you feel like they did in like, at least like creating some kind of character you could hold on to and watching this movie? Yeah. Well, first of all, right. I, 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 I want to thank you for pointing out that none of us knew napoleon <laughs> and i think that's an that's an important aspect of historiography that people are you know i talked about people kind of getting upset about the the um you know the way that this movie is and the way this movie portrays um uh, napoleon as a person um and i think the we're we're, we're crossing wires here right where it's like we can make definitive statements about the accuracy of events right did napoleon personally lead this charge did he you know assault this city did he you know were there this many deaths at this battle those kind of things uh what kind of person someone is is not historical fact that's the kind of thing that you that that will always come with an asterisk in historical analysis is like what like the way that somebody's personality is described is is entirely subjective and the way that we know this is because it's entirely subjective today you and i might meet somebody and be like oh that person was so cool uh we want to be friends with them and then another person in our friends group might meet that person and be like this person's a dick why would you ever want to hang out with them kind of thing and it's like that person's personality did not maybe it did change between the two interactions right but it's like that is not historical fact you cannot say that a person was one way or another way you can recount stories and you can try and develop a portrait of somebody but ultimately historical fact is events that happened not what somebody's personality was like and so you know with napoleon He's an incredibly complex person who, as we determined already, there is no real, uh, you know, consensus about. There is no, you know, he was a great man or he had a he was a great leader or those kind of things. Like there are people who will say that 
but there's also people who will say that he was insane. And so I think the movie the, the movie does a good job kind of threading that needle of humanizing him. He's he's weird. He has traits that we you know in the movie that we would we would say are not quote unquote normal. Uh but also he is he is still ultimately human. He still um you know has has very tangible desires and fears and things that he you know views uh b- believes for himself um he is somebody who you know <laughs> there there's this whole other angle of him right as like kind of he's kind of got this sort of like incelly thing going on but that he like he just can't talk to women normally <laughs> um like and so uh yeah i think at the moment that he meets josephine like i mean I I, th- I think she probably knows who he is. She's playing it kind of cool, but like we're led to believe at that point that he has amassed some level of stature, uh, you know, in his career at that point. And like, you know, he should probably like be able to rely on that a little bit when he walks into the room and he's trying to meet a lady and he is just, uh, he doesn't, he, he's at a complete loss. Like right. he, he, does, he, he doesn't have that kind of confidence, even if he maybe should. It's not, it's just not something that he knew. Well, it yeah. was not war. It was not something he knew how to do. Um, and so that that portrayal, right? I mean, you could say like maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not. I will say a lot of the, you know, a lot of the screenplay, a lot of the ideas presented in the screenplay are supposed to be drawn pretty succinctly from his from his letters. Um uh, you know, the, the content of which some of the letters we we know about, um, some of them more notorious than other letters. <laughs> um I don't know, you know, and we can talk about this at some point, you know, because my big, if I did have one big qualm, it was the overall pacing of the movie. But it's also something that I've had to kind of temper knowing that there is a longer cut of this movie right? So that will be seen eventually. So but, I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you about that a little bit, because again, I mean, to answer the question I asked you is that like, I feel like I did get a pretty good idea of like, who this Napoleon was that they wanted us to and how they wanted to convey it to him, whether it be like, you know, his, the confidence issues with women we talk about, the insecurity that does feel within the marriage when he finds out, I mean, I, uh, Josephine is cheating on him and, you know, how that kind of, you know, affects them going forward and, you know, how he kind of like handles himself, you know, with a battle too. And, you know, I, I got a decent idea of like, what well, I feel like I did get a decent idea of, uh, of what made him tick overall. However, you know, I feel like maybe what I needed more of was, and again, it, we've already said multiple times, just like how massive a figure he is. And there's like a discussion to be had as to like whether or not you can, you know, really like actually capture everything this guy was in one movie. You know, I just, even in, in to their credit, it's not a cradle to the great biopic. We're not there, you know, in his, uh, we're not there in his childhood or whatever, but like, there's just like so much to him. Can you really like figure, can you really like, grasp all that in two hours and 40 minutes i i I don't know and i feel like because the one thing they wanted to be a part of this movie which is like understandable is you know when he comes back at the end and he tries to like have his last hurrah and he gets like a decent amount of soldiers to defect him or whatever and he's clear he has people that are still loyal to him i don't i don't know if the movie like really does a good enough job of explaining why that would be you know we know he had some successes we know he rose to power and he had control over france for a while but like I don't think we see enough of him like being a leader that would inspire, inspire that kind of loyalty, you know, based on how things ended. Right. So like we, we, we do hear that, like, you know, 
uh, uh the first time that when they removed him from power it's like oh yeah like he just 400 soldiers died on his watch or whatever so it's like all right knowing that knowing he gets exiled like i kind of wanted to see like him like being a good leader and his people like actually like respecting the way he did lead you know and it feels like most of the movie is either like really just on the battlefield seeing those successes or failures or in the bedroom and i don't know if there's like a ton of aside from like the one coup scene i don't know if there's really much in between those two things and like you would have gotten a better sense for how france felt about him if like you'd seen a little bit more of him holding court and at the same time i was entertained i'm not necessarily like i i don't like it when people say like a movie's like you know when, when people like criticize a movie for like being too long or not covering the right stuff in its length but then like you know not saying what they should have cut out i'm not saying there's anything i'm they i'm definitely saying they should have cut out but it's like i think there's maybe more context you could give me to like how france felt about him but at the same time it's a two hour and 45 minute movie um funny that i happen to invite you for this just earlier today because i think one movie that people have you know talked about this in concert with is barry linden which we did a podcast on pretty early in covid and i and i actually had no idea before we until like two hours ago that this was a, a Kubrick uh, passion project at one point, just mm-hmm, doing a Napoleon yeah. movie. I didn't know that. But like Barry Lyndon has a, you know, a character that has a, a somewhat similar arc, but like that movie is, it's only about 20 minutes longer than this one. But like, you know, and I, I, I mean, how many guys get to put three plus hour movies in theaters? You know, like, I mean, who knows, maybe they weren't going to let him and that's why he's having to do this director's cut thing. Right. So yeah. like maybe, maybe I, who knows, maybe 20 to 25 minutes more of the stuff I'm talking about would have, you know, made it feel more complete to me. But again, like I have trouble, like you know, faulting Ridley too much for that when maybe they were like, "No, we, sorry, we're not letting you take up that much theater time." I don't know. So that's my one thing is like I, I feel like it's maybe like missing a little bit of a context for how the country felt about him, and I, I just wish there would have been a way to get a little more of that in there with how long it still was. But I don't want to knock him too much for that if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I understand, and it's 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 hard, right? Because so he, you know, he. He held court, um, you know, to some degree, but he wasn't, he, he was not a, uh, an enlightened despot in the same way that, you know, like Frederick of Prussia or like other, you know, kind of his, his contemporaries and sort of some of the kings uh, and emperors who came earlier, right, were viewed as, right, where they had these courts full of uh, intellectuals and, and things like that. He, he did have that to some degree. Um but it it was it wasn't really <laughs> the point of his uh of his reign and by and large he was i think known throughout france because of his military victory and it's funny because a lot of the people sort of reacting angrily to the fact that the battles were not portrayed accurately or things like that go to sort of prove the point that it's like a lot of his legend, both in France contemporarily at the time and then in the years, you know, in, in decades and centuries since, right, is um, uh, is sort of as a, is like his, basically his KD ratio. Like <laughs> people, people knew, uh, you know, people in France knew about him through his presence as the emperor through his military victory and through his reign, through the, um, you know, the, the reforms that he carried out, um, you know, probably mo- most recognizably, right. The Napoleonic code, civil law that has sort of laid the, the groundwork for modern legal thought mm-hmm. in, in general, especially on the continent. Um, 
so that that's really that is really how people knew him and and to this and by the same token right it's how people outside of france knew him too and that's why his reputation was so divided at the time um and so publicly right to people in france never having met the guy personally he was the leader that changed their military fate he was a leader that took them from being the perpetual military losers to being the greatest military superpower in history. Maybe I guess some of them are still maybe holding on to that a little bit at the time where he did make his return. And for sure. And, yeah. and, 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 and like, I guess that might just be, maybe that's what I'm missing is that like, like he brought them such prominence that they're not getting hung up on the 400,000 people that died when he tried to invade Russia. Cause they still are just like, and so, some of them are just still riding that high from the the heights he brought them to. And it's like, yeah, I, as long as one of my family didn't ever sit and die with him, then whatever, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you also have to re- regard right that after he, after he was exiled the first time, uh, it's um, uh, Louis, I believe Louis the eighteenth, who took over uh, during the Bourbon Restoration, um, and during the first Bourbon Restoration, and he was not well liked. There was mm. uh, Louis the eighteenth was was very poorly regarded, uh, generally seen as. You know, the way Ian McNeese portrays him very briefly in the movie, uh, kind of a big, dumb slob hmm. um, and uh, sort of was was immediately recognized, right, as being a symbol of everything that the French had a decade earlier, uh, you know, revolted to overthrow. Yeah. Right. De- decadence, the decadence of the aristocratic class, et cetera, et cetera. So the 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 absence of Napoleon was felt just as much as the presence was. Right. And I think that's part of it, but, but I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, and, and like I said, I, it's just in my mind, I know that there's another hour and a half of this movie sitting <laughs> somewhere ready to go. And it's so clear to me in, in things like that, uh, you know, just the ephemera of the period, getting to see him interact more with other people that are not uh, in his direct sphere of influence. And also, uh, you know, obviously his relationship with Josephine, I feel like could be, you know, better fleshed out, better shown uh, kind of the full uh, dark, kinky details thereof. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't touch too much on that yet. I mean, like I, I did allude to the fact that like the the downfall of their marriage is like, you know, uh, her not producing an heir for him. But like, it's like, it's dark the way she's treated. And, but it's like, they also play it for a lot of dark humor. Uh, what were some of the moments of the movie where you were like pretty impressed with like how they were able to like walk that tightrope? Oh God, man. All of the, the humorous, <laughs> I think, you know, obviously destiny, lot... destiny has brought me this land drop. That one yeah. was good. <laughs> yes. This will be, you know, that will be the line for the ages, man. Destiny has put this lamb chop yes. before me. <laughs> um, that is, that is, that is the perfect uh, encapsulation, right, of the humor of this movie is kind of the, and you mentioned Barry Lyndon, right? It feels very Barry Lyndon-esque. Um, and Barry, Barry Lyndon uh, does benefit, I will say, from being not a historical document, but rather a, uh, or an attempt to be a historical document, but rather an adaptation of a, a Thackeray novel. So it has a literary kind of quality to it already. Um but so, yeah, so I, I do respect David, David Scarpa a lot for being able to still insert that kind of uh, Linden-esque 
uh, literary humor into a lot of this movie. The one, uh, the one, the one thing that stood out for me, and it was actually not as like outwardly funny as that. It was more probably credit given to like Joaquin was when he sometime, sometime not long after he comes back from Egypt because he literally, you know deserts his entire army when he hears his wife is cheating on him which is like also kind of funny in and of itself when they're like just telling him like look like you're gonna be a deserter like you can go back to your wife at any point but like we're we're in the middle of something big here like no i gotta i gotta bail on y'all sorry uh but he he goes back and like within a few scenes of when he gets back and after having confronted josephine he just like with dead like at least you know i think we're meant to laugh because a lot of my theater did laugh but like he just says with dead seriousness as he's sitting with Josephine kind of reflecting on his initial reaction when he came back and acted like he was going to a victor. He was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm not motivated by like petty grievance and an insecurity. <laughs> he just says it so seriously. And like, I guess, it, I mean, a lot of that's like a lot of the humor in that is baked into what we already know about Napoleon anyway. But it was just so funny the way he delivered the line. And I was like, I, I, I got I, I got a huge laugh out of me and my audience. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I, that was also a that was a big one um it just and yeah that's the the irony right the uh the, the irony i think is the source of a lot of the humor mm-hmm. um so i i think it works yeah yeah i think it, again like it's you know it's 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 kind of terrible what happened to josephine and uh and also like it's kind of odd like we're led to know it I mean, again i didn't look up her wikipedia or anything before i did this but we're led to see at the beginning of the movie like she already has a son and a daughter uh when she meets him and I, i'm assuming that's probably true uh mm-hmm. and then like when she when they ship her off to like live on that house that very nice house like she got a good divorce lawyer i guess uh you know she she, she she's out on this house and like it's just every time they shoot her it's like she's just like she's like you know just like all, they, they make it seem like it's like the most depressing existence where she has no one unless like napoleon like deigns to like you know grace her with his presence but like it's like didn't she have two kids does she have like you know are any of them old enough to have kids yet themselves like does she get to play see her kids at all it's like so it kind of forgot about that and it, it, but like it made it look like a very sad existence for her and it still was even if i'm like hey doesn't she have kids she can also still hang out with even if she didn't have one with napoleon but like it's a, it's like it's very sad but like i never felt like you know it was, you know, necessarily like mean spirited to her whenever stuff was getting played for laughs. And oftentimes the jokes on him. And I just thought they did a pretty good job of like weaving in humor throughout it. I don't know if it was like, I mean, I, some of it was really funny. It, it doesn't, the movie doesn't keep up the, it's not comic. I feel like it's not as much of a, it's nowhere near as much of a comedy as Barry Lyndon is, but at the same, and it, it, I feel like it just has a little more, it, it just has an overall more dramatic tone. But that, that, that being said, the, the the comedic points still hit, the comedic beats still really hit in a way that doesn't feel out of place is what I would say. So yeah, yeah, I mean, right with with regards to Josephine, um, you know, and her other kids, and this might be a question of, uh, you know, sort of eliminating things for the sake of maintaining some degree of scope, right? Because you're right, Josephine did have a a, a son um, and a daughter. Uh, that that son, uh, Eugene de Bernays, ended up marrying. Uh, marrying a um a princess of bavaria i believe hmm. um and her uh, uh and his uh his daughter was uh would go on to be i believe the empress of brazil hmm. um and uh her uh, uh josephine's grandson by so his josephine's daughter uh hortense de bernays uh ended up marrying i believe 
Napole- one of Napoleon's brothers, hmm. one of his, I think his younger brother. Um, and th- uh, <laughs> that their child, so... <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, you have if you're if you're having that much trouble explaining it, there just wasn't time in the movie for them to get into all that. Problem. Well, you, uh, long story short, Josephine's grandson, through her daughter from her previous marriage, uh, is Napoleon the Third, who ended up being the emperor of France during the the return to the empire in the eighteen eighteen thirties and forties. Hmm. So, um, so so yeah, so definitely a lot of sprawl that I don't think the movie was particularly interested. Yeah uh in in display you see what you see what i'm saying though it's like it's like it seemed like her she had a lot going on through like her kids and it's just like it makes it seem like she just like withered away and died without any ever having any interaction other than like the once a year napoleon would go to see her or something is what it made it seem like yeah, Which, yeah I mean, I, I, I get i'm not i'm not on the message boards complaining about that i just thought it was like it was one thing i noticed within the movie when i i clocked that she had kids that we never saw again after that first scene yeah yeah it's not uh it, it's it's definitely not expanded on fully but again it's hard because we're really seeing this through napoleon's perspective and it's like he doesn't really care about her kids from a previous marriage <laughs> right they're, they're not his kids so uh you know i think it's partially oh. it's how how he's viewing their existence speaking of him having kids uh another thing that i that i i, I really laughed at and like i felt bad laughing at it was like when he's supposed to like go sleep with like this 18 year old girl just to like figure out if he's the one that's the, 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 the cause of the infertility problems or she or Josephine is just like, it goes to him just being awkward as all hell get out when he's just like approaching that moment. He's just like the way that shoots him, like walking to do that as if it's like some kind of like death March because he's so uncomfortable. Like I, I could, my, my theater laughed at that too. And I, it was terrible. Cause like, like, how terrible who, who would want to know what went into putting that girl in that bed but like from napoleon's perspective it was like kind of funny like it was it, again it's another example of the movie kind of striking that balance at the same time i didn't want to think too hard about it <laughs> yeah and the, the movie definitely uh it, it it plays around with um it, it it uses music pretty effectively um you know with regards to kind of uh putting scenes in their context, some of which are a lot weird, like more like weirder and more like jovial than you would probably think they should be kind of thing, you know? So, so yeah, so I, I, I think for me, uh, you know, scenes like that, you know, we're talking about the killer earlier, having the sort of dark humor to it. And I would argue that Napoleon does too. Is it, it's a, there, that's the only way you could really approach the absurdity and the humor of it is through kind of that dark edge, right? Mm-hmm. There's, I don't think there's a way to believably make like a Napoleon satire that doesn't just read like, you know, angry propaganda, right? Like, <laughs> if you're going to portray him as a little dwarf man who had a big temper and was, you know, big puffy chested little man kind of thing. Like, I think it's just, you're going to, it's, you run the risk of just making something that's not really, that's that's not really accessible in any meaningful way. You know, it is interesting though. Like I, I I don't remember because you, you, we didn't talk about it really. I don't, were you, were you a fan of House of Gucci? Well, no, I think this movie succeeds more in what House of Gucci was trying to right. do than House of Gucci did. Yeah, so as you were talking about like how effectively it satirized different different parts of the story and stuff like that, I couldn't help but think about House of Gucci and how like I just I was really let down by my, that movie and what my expectations were for it, and I just like 
the problem with House of Gucci was that the actors were all over the fucking place on that movie. Some some actors under like some actors understood that it was a uh, that it was going to be a gentle, you know, not a gentle, but a, that it was going to be a eighty five percent dark chocolate satire, right? And it was going to be it was going to be kind of grim, uh, like like Lady Gaga. I think great, gave a great performance that walks that line. Some like, actors, like Adam, Adam, Adam Driver, Lady Gaga, and Jared Leto all showed up to make completely different movies. Exactly. Adam Driver thought he was making a drama. Like he did not, there was no satire in that performance. And, and of course, and then right by, by, uh, on the other hand, <laughs> uh, Jared Leto uh, thought he was making a slapstick uh, comedy and it just didn't, it didn't work. Everybody was on different pages. Um, but I think for this movie, I would say, right, obviously for this movie, uh, uh, for this movie, Really, there's there really most of the humor is rests on the shoulders of Joaquin Phoenix and and Napoleon, and I think that's fine. I, I think he really he really does carry most of the humor of the movie because most of the humor is is in him, like having no filter or mm. not understanding situations, right. um, or having difficulty expressing himself in situations. Right. So the other actors mostly just have to kind of react. Mm. Um, and I think that works really well uh, when you have this a very a very light satire, as it were. Yeah. Also, as far as the performances on the surface, too, I guess credit to them for not really trying to get too cute and do accents or anything like that. You know, it's like I'm pretty sure Joaquin's not even really doing any kind of faux European accent, really, for the most part. And uh, and Vanessa Kirby just sounds like Vanessa Kirby uh, for the most part. Like you know, so. You know, I, and I actually really love The Last Duel, but like I think they tried to make all the. I I, I think they really tried. I think they did tr- do a little more accent work in that one, but I mean, I didn't bother me there. But like, they, it could have, you know, it could have like thrown things off a little bit here if they got too cute with it, you know. So. Oh yeah, for sure. I think he learned his lesson. The Last Duel very it sailed very close to the wind of uh not uh, of some of the some of the accents being. I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't remember off the top of my head like what he was having Matt Damon or or Ben Affleck and Adam Driver do there, but like it wasn't like playing it quite as straight as they did here. But like it didn't really bother me there. But like who knows? Maybe this would have been strange if like we maybe I don't know. You know what I mean? But like it's yeah. I, I think I think it's fine. You don't need to really try too hard to like make people think it's just because it's in France. You don't need to make them do something that's not natural. No, you know? I think no. I I every day I wake up I say a prayer thanking God for Chernobyl for opening the floodgates on mm. people making uh, historical. Uh, historical dramas or whatever it may be historical films or media where you just put no effort into <laughs> trying to trying to tr- trick people into thinking that uh, you know that you're listening to somebody with a certain accent uh, if somebody can do an accent that's great uh, if if there's not an immediate aptitude for it or immediate ability to do it I don't know why you would do that like it's not uh, it's just not really necessary. Nobody is going to be more convinced that Joaquin Phoenix is Napoleon if he is talking like this. So ever seen, he is not, it does not matter. Like it, uh, nobody's gonna care. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not. It's not going to actually affect anything. <laughs> did, did you think about the height thing at all? At all? No, because the real the the, the 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 true reality of it is Napoleon was not short uh, by. By really conventional standards, he was pretty average height uh, for his day and age. Um, I mean, you're you're a six nine guy saying this. So, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I'm. Are you gonna tell me Napoleon is like my height, and then I'm gonna like feel really insecure now? Like, was he like actually like five nine? 
he was he was like five six so oh, okay, he was gotcha, i mean okay. short for i was gonna say I, I i i didn't bother me but i also thought about the fact that like it wasn't like a thing in the movie at all they never showed him next to someone looking particularly short or anything like that he had to step up on the stool to go look at the the, the pharaoh embalmed pharaoh but that was about it you know i was literally it so like i it didn't bother me at all but i'm wondering if people are gonna like go to this movie expecting something about people like you know, making fun of his stature throughout the course of the movie or something like that. And I, I didn't need that, but I didn't know if that was something you even thought about as you were watching it, but I guess not. So. No, yeah. He was, okay. he was like five, six, five, six and a okay. half. Okay. He was the, the portrayal of him as being short is largely a propaganda effort. It's largely, you know, people at the time uh, in, in the UK, in, uh, in Germany in Spain, right. Wanting to see him as diminutive and, uh, he was young when he gained power as well. So that that sort of built into it. Um, there's a common legend that part of his portrayal has to do with like he always had um, Swiss guards with him. And Swiss the Swiss guards were like, you know, six feet tall. So they made him look short. Hmm. I don't I don't know how much reality there is to that. Um, but the, 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 the truth of the matter is he was not that short. Um hmm. Uh, at least certainly not by the standards of the, you know, of, of the turning of the 19th century. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, uh, gotcha. Fair. Well, thank you for the uh, little history lesson there. So people shouldn't fret that if they're worried about like, you know, the movie uh, leaving something important out, not that important. We learn something new every day. Uh, Elijah, uh, we don't have a, we, we got, we got to get out of here soon, but anything else about, uh, about Napoleon we didn't touch on that you did want to highlight before we wrapped up. No, I mean, once again, uh, at the end here, I'll give a shout out to my guy, Darius Wolski. I'm hoping this is his year. I mean, it was a beautifully mm. lensed film. He's definitely got some stark competition, but but ultimately I'm I'm hoping that he uh, he pulls it out with the best cinematography this year because, it, it, I mean, he really just did a fantastic job uh, bringing the, the period to life in, in the very Ridley Scott way of having it be kind of grimy and kind of gross, but also very vividly realized, so... Yeah. Well, I, again, I, well, the movie's got a pretty mixed critical reception, but, you know, uh, I, again, we both found plenty to enjoy and it's uh, indisputably uh, really technically well done. So I, I would definitely not be upset if it got that kind of recognition either. Uh, so, yeah, it sounds like both recommend going to see Napoleon. One thing, oh, one thing I'll add is that I saw with my grandma, uh, you know, and I, uh, like I, I, I saw Elvis with my grandma last year. So I was home for Thanksgiving and I thought that, Oh, it'd be cool to go see Priscilla with her. And maybe she'd be into that, you know, 80 year old woman, like, you know, maybe the right demographic for in theory to go see something about Priscilla Presley. And she kind of put it off for a couple of days and she's like, Oh, is there anything else out? And I was like, well, Nanny, basically at the, the Hunger Games movie and Napoleon. Those are the only other two things on my list that like are showing around here that I got to see And She's like, you know, I think I'd rather see Napoleon than Priscilla. I was like, all right, Nana, cool. And uh, within five minutes of this movie, you see uh, Marie Antoinette get decapitated along with someone else, I'm pretty sure. And uh, I'm like, oh, God, is this the best movie to see with a grandma? And I was like really worried about her. And uh, she actually really ended up enjoying it. And I mean, and, you know, that, I mean, I was worried that she would feel super weird like I did about having to sit next to her through some of those sex scenes, which, again, were played for laughs. But also you're still sitting next to your grandma with that. Uh, you know, and, and she was a little confused. Like she more than like, so she was worried. Maybe she wasn't following the battles closely enough. I'm like, Nana, don't worry. As long as you understand that, like this is part of Napoleon's rise, I think it'll be good. And, uh, and like, she actually ended up really enjoying it. So, you know, uh, and like, she was just a little unsure, like the first half hour, and then she got very into it. So, you know, if you're, uh, home with your family around the holidays, it's still in theaters, 
probably if, if my 80 year old grandma can enjoy it, you can, you can probably find plenty of people in your family that will enjoy it as well. So that's the other note I would leave you guys on. So, um, uh, Elijah, before you, uh, before you wrap this up, any, anything else you've been watching recently around the, as we've been around watching stuff, more stuff coming out for the holidays, anything else you've been watching recently you'd like to recommend for the listeners? Yeah, there's, there's two movies I was mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, one, one kind of in, uh, in regards and relations to, uh, our, uh, our, our, uh, you know, two films that we were talking about mm-hmm. here, right? Um, the uh, the first one in relation to the killer, uh, I wanted to mention the movie uh, Slow West mm. um, from 2015. Uh, it is a film by uh, John McLean, who uh, I don't think has done anything else uh, before or since mm. <laughs> Slow West. But Slow West, as its title would imply, is a Western uh, the movie's a, like eight years old and it seemed like it was well received i know it didn't make a ton of money but like you thought that guy would have done something else since yeah it just sort of quietly passed through uh cody smith mcphee plays a young scottish boy who teams up with a mysterious gunman to uh find the woman uh in deep in the west who he is uh infatuated with the mysterious gunman played by michael fassbender um and i want to bring it up because it feels kind of it felt in a way sort of like a pre a progenitor for this role sort of the laconic gunslinger um but also ultimately uh something that i've heard and and you know maybe this is it's a little bit of sort of insider inside baseball sort of thing but um the, the general consensus is michael fassbender doesn't really like acting <laughs> hmm. um and that he may be sort of trying to sort of wind his career down and uh, and ramp up his race car driver career legitimately yes he is apparently like that was always his passion when he was younger uh and so you know now he's actually getting to drive for team ferrari he's uh he's you know pretty psyched about that but if you look <laughs> at his career over the last several years you can see he's done less and less movies um over the years and so if you know if he is getting towards the end of his career i would hope that people could start to kind of go back and recognize some of the older films he's he did that maybe didn't get as much recognition. Um, and he was extremely uh, prolific during that period of like 2015, like, you know, between like 2010 and 2016 or so. Um, and a few of those movies that did, did not get amongst those movies that did not get as much recognition uh, was slow West. And so uh, I would, I would direct people to, to see that again, as the title implies slow West, it is not the, uh, exciting rollicking westerns that some people might be uh you know in the mood for but uh it is it is a very interesting and unique film um and then the other film that i wanted to mention uh in relation to napoleon is a movie i just got to watch for the first time recently uh which is uh lorena margot or queen margot um which is a french film from the 90s uh, with Isabella Johnny, who is playing uh, uh, Queen Margot, <laughs> Prince, Princess uh, Marguerite de Valois. Um, and basically, it follows the uh, court machinations of the period during the uh, during the, the religious wars in France between the Catholics and the Huguenots. Um, and it's it was a very uh unique movie and it felt like good prep for watching Napoleon because it's not the movie that you expect it to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the poster in America, it's like Isabella Johnny with like no, you know, with like a just a, a shawl on looking all 
like sexy and dramatic and that's how the movie was marketed as like a bodice ripper you know that it's like oh like an old one of those old school sexy romance films you know period romance films uh and the reality is that it is definitely not um it, it maybe is that for like the first 40 minutes but by the end of the movie it is very dark and very uh very very unexpectedly grim and uh and I, I found that in a way it was very, it was a good watch before Napoleon just to kind of get, get you out of the headspace of expecting a typical historic, like historical film, right? Hmm. It's, it, it doesn't go in the comedy direction like Napoleon does. Rather, it goes in the other direction of becoming uh, something akin to like a horror movie almost. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> you know? Well, good recommendations. Uh, speaking of horror movies, I'll recommend Eli Roth's Thanksgiving. I saw it last week. I had a fun time with it. Uh, Going to have a podcast on it with it, probably with uh, both uh, Adam, uh, who joins who's joined us for all the Scream movies. That movie, or who's joined us to talk about a couple of Scream movies before, and this movie shares some DNA with Scream, and uh, and also Daniel, who uh, if if we can make it work scheduling wise, who I don't really think liked it. So we have an, we'll have an episode coming up with that. That it was some very differing opinions. So if nothing else, if you like horror movies, I think you'll be entertained, even if you don't think it's uh, particularly good. So I recommend Thanksgiving, even if at this point you were seeing it after Thanksgiving. I think Daniel actually. Got the had the pleasure of seeing a movie called Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving. I didn't see it on that date either. I squeezed it in a little before that. But uh, yeah, so as usual, I think you can find Elijah on Letterboxd at Mr. Smith Goes to FL, correct? Mm-hmm. That's me. And me, it's uh, at Josh Chernifoy. I actually uh, uploaded a month's worth of reviews the other day, still about three months behind. But, you know, uh, we're getting, we're getting, we'll hopefully be close to caught up by the end of the year. At Josh Chernivoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd podcast emails. RewindMoviePod at gmail.com podcast. Twitter's at RewindMoviePod. So I want to thank Elijah for joining us. He'll be coming back uh, later in the year for episodes on both uh both Ferrari and um, Poor Things, which I'm very excited for, uh, given all the early word on that one. Uh, but coming up next on the podcast, I'm just, I like I said, I saw like five movies the week of Thanksgiving and we're just recording all week. So again, like coming up soon, we'll probably have something on Priscilla. We'll have something on Saltburn. We'll have something on Thanksgiving. We'll uh, get to the new Hunger Games movie at some point. That's just might be, you know, a couple weeks from the time you're listening to this, but I've seen all those movies and I plan on having episodes on all of them. So I want to thank Elijah for being uh, here with us today to talk about these two. I want to thank all of you for listening and we'll see you next time.